and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the exploding pen of car and movie podcasts. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm joined as ever by Martin Spain, and this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Michael Bay's ball-bogging boxer briefs. Just the thing for tucking away those bad boys, and the active charcoal filter makes things more pleasant when things go boom. Available in Island Green, Golden Hour, and Tobacco Grad Orange, I'm getting myself a pair of those and you should too. Marty. Where, where did you find that? Find it. I wrote it. My brain had an odd, weird brain fart earlier, and I wrote that. That's awesome. That's wonderful. It's a shame it's not a real product. <laughs> this is, of course, in reference to our podcast uh, on the best of early Michael Bay, which was a couple of podcasts ago now, but is a really good listen. We had a great fun recording mm. it, so we do urge you to go back and listen to that. <laughs> um, but just to explain Chris's intro... Pay attention, 007, because this is a Bond-themed episode because with the imminent release of No Time to Die, which has been pushed back and delayed and pushed back and pandemic and all that kind of stuff, it's finally coming out onto our screens at the end of this month. So in honour of that, we are going to turn over the main portion of the podcast to discussing our favourite Bond cars, mm-hmm. Bond chases, Bonds and Bond films. But first, which is usually Chris's line, but I have stolen it, <laughs> I'm going to ask this in a different way because Bayliss has ruined this portion of the podcast. <laughs> What beverage are you consuming? <laughs> I have a bottle of Angel's Envy bourbon from Whiskey Row in Louisville, Kentucky. Most notable for being a port-finished bourbon, which um, is quite an... There we go. It's quite an unusual thing for bourbons. What about you? What are you drinking? Well, I was going to go along the whole bourbon thing as well with some of those samples you sent me, but my palate is still struggling with bourbon because I kind of uncork it just like you have then and it smells like unrefined jet fuel <laughs> and I taste it and it tastes like what I imagine unrefined jet fuel to taste like <laughs> and so I have chickened out and put back the Elijah Craig tw- 12 years old that uh, I was going to drink and instead opted for some Bowmore 15 year old that I was Ooh. sent by a friend um, in return for some photography so uh, it's very nice um, I may take a dive later on the Elijah Craig after I've had a bit of something else to just <laughs> loosen up my palate or whatever you call it this has gone down a completely weirdo tangent but yes other than what are you drinking what have you been watching over the past couple of weeks so aside from Ted Lasso which if you have Apple TV plus is awesome and has I've been considering watching it, but everyone says it's good, which means I, in my typical knee-jerk fashion, insist that it's rubbish and don't want to watch it. Entirely fair. See also, see also Game of Thrones, <laughs> The Office. Um, what was that thing with Steve Coogan in it? No, I love The Wire, but I, I found The Wire before everyone else thought it was cool. I think maybe we've just narrowed down on why it is that I like to find things first. <laughs> I don't like to be a fast follower. Anyway, sorry. Well... We've had two big things since our last podcast actually come out and able to be watched. And the first of those is Car Trek Season 5? Season 5, yes. It makes so many, I lose track of which is which. And this was... two a year and then a Christmas special appears to be the pattern they've set them for Mm. for themselves now, right? Which is a good number. It feels like there's enough of them without there being too many. 
It's another thing they have cribbed directly from Top Gear, <laughs> as far as yes. I understand. Yeah, two, two series a year and a Christmas special. So this is the Dreamcar series. So we have a Lamborghini Murcielago, a Mercedes SLS, and, appropriately, a Aston, and, uh, Aston Martin DBS. Uh, Aston Martin. <laughs> in, uh, in Casino Royale. I'll get the trivia in early because it's kind of relevant at this point. If you go to Aston Martin and you buy a DBS, you specify it in Casino Royal, the colour is does not have an E on the end of it. It's not it's not Casino Royale, the colour. It is Casino Royal. In the same way that like there's quantum silver, not quantum of solid silver. And off they go from the Amelia Island Concorde d'Elegance, and they go on a private jet. And they do things on a racetrack in bits of Georgia, which look entirely lovely. And I have to say, I had a moment, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode, where the music is now the Car Trek music in my head, even though it's some bit of copyright music that's out there in the world. And it feels more and more comfortable. It feels nice. And I'm really doing that thing that I do with Top Gear, where you kind of put it on and you go... Ah, everything's okay. It's comfort TV. It started out as comfort TV at the start of the pandemic. They just nailed exactly what we needed to see at that point when we're all stuck Mm. inside. Um, I would give this one a B, maybe a B plus. I don't think it's the best. I still think they just hit something magic with that first one. And this, this one isn't quite as good because it has a slightly strangely paced opening um, opening episode where they ride in a McLaren mm. F1 for reasons. I know it's dream cars, but it's maybe only one of their dream cars. I'm not entirely clear on that, but they kind of go for an extended drive in a McLaren F1, which is glorious, as you might expect, um, and rather wonderful. Uh, but it doesn't intro you to the concept of the series mm. in quite the same I feel like the setup needed to be before they got into the McLaren or the McLaren needed to be the 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 end game. They needed to build to it. They kind of led with that and then went sort of and now back to normal you know, normal human cars, which aren't necessarily normal human cars. They're talking about amazing cars. But I will say I thought the there's a good bit of needle going on where everyone is ribbing Tyler for having bought a very nice C-Class <laughs> in the shape of an SLS AMG, which I thought was a, a, a wonderfully harsh put down. Um, they do end up in some banger cars, their first cars, which is hugely amusing for the fact that none of them could actually afford to buy their first cars anymore because of the slightly crazy price um, uh, used car market at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I really dug the idea of of them you know, taking out their dream cars. Because one of the things that does bug me with some YouTubers is that the project is done and then it sits on a shelf mm. somewhere or in a parking slot in the back of somebody's garage or unit and never gets driven, never gets taken on these adventures. And one of the things I love about seeing these guys enjoy the cars they've worked so hard for is that it means that they're there for a purpose. Cars are meant to be driven and they're not there solely to show off status or to collect as just things they're there to be driven and if you don't drive them then what's the point um so i really enjoyed seeing them out driving the cars they work so hard to attain using them you know in tyler's case 
you know, breaking his own personal speed <laughs> limit. He didn't look very comfortable at speed in, in that thing, but, you know, doing 150 miles an hour, seeing Ed absolutely rinse his Murcielago around a circuit in Florida looked like great fun. And it's fantastic to see someone use those cars like most owners mm. never do. And I do think as well that it's easy to say that Ed Bolin is like the Jeremy Clarkson of the group because he does have that patter. He does have that way of when he's talking to somebody, he'll be like, well, the check engine light's on and that's fine because I checked the engine and it's still there. So, we're, you know, everything's okay. And it's salesman patter. It's not it's- quite the Clarkson, which will be like one or two gags. With, with Ed Bolin, it's just like mm. a continuous stream. There's no <laughs> off button on him. Did they make a joke at some point about him just like, anytime he starts talking, he's like, they just wander off for 10 minutes and just let him get on with it. <laughs> it's it's coming. But I, I really did, as ever, we say this all the time, I really did enjoy this mm. season of Car Trek. It makes me want to go back and rewatch all of them again. Yes. I think the production values were a step up again, a lot more drone work again. I thought the, the car-to-car stuff at the circuit was mm. done really, really well. The stuff in the McLaren F1, clearly not an easy car to film at high speed, <laughs> three up. Uh, that was done extremely well as well. There wasn't anything to match the the drone shots from their previous series where they were mm. in the canyons, the sort of red mountain roads and the twisting, almost helicopter-like shots they got in the previous series, but still hugely entertaining. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they do this time around for their Christmas special. If you do enjoy this, there is a VinWiki episode where they talk about how they drove the McLaren F1. And from what they from what Ed said in this story, he basically expected to drive to the edge of this event, kind of do like 200 yards there and back down a driveway and kind of go, look, we're driving the McLaren F1. Isn't this great? Oh, movie magic. And then they actually end up doing a whole lot more and it just made his year. So that's well worth a watch. Speaking of things that are also worth a watch, Netflix has launched the new documentary called Schumacher. I was listening to the Autosport, I nearly said the Auto Movie, the Autosport podcast, where they were talking about it. And they had James Allen on, who is not only Michael Schumacher's autobiographer, uh, sorry, biographer, but also appears in this. And the first thing he said was, well, this is up there with Senna. No, it isn't, for a couple of reasons. First of all, so this film, whereas Senna basically said, here's a racing driver and here's his rivalry with Prost and everybody else. This is basically Michael Schumacher's upbringing, learning about him coming up through carts. There's some interesting stuff about his parents, about their kart track. He gets to Benetton, skips over almost all the Ferrari stuff, and then we've got the the postscript of his life as, as things stand. Um, it also varies from Senna in that there's a lot of contemporary interviews. So whereas Senna was all researched, dug out, found clips of audio and interviews, what have you, this was much more, which I, I found a little bit, um, I'm going to say dubious. Dubious is probably the wrong word. 
but it's a combination of them interviewing Michael Schumacher when he was 13 and karting. And then you've got somebody like James Allen going, well, when he first came to F1 and, you know, we all thought he was going to be a great uh, driver and there's all this buzz about him. And you think, really? You know, where's the kind of the rose tinted glasses with this? I think it, it highlights some aspects of his life and his personality, which were never really covered at the time, but sort of have been since, if you've read pieces about Michael and you've read interviews with him since. For me, I think if you are a Schumacher fan, if if you remember that time or you're coming to it completely cold, I think it's a very good introduction to the man. I think it, it's a very fair introduction, but I think... The one thing that I would say is that it doesn't have that emotional punch, apart from the end, which I don't know how much we want to talk about the end. But looking back at his career, and I was thinking about this afterwards, and I I kind of, I'm interested to see if there's anything you can think of, but you almost can't say Senna without saying Prost. It's such a kind of burning, and same as I think we're going to say with like, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. There's just this kind of eruption of these two forces kind of just bumping heads. Whereas with Schumacher's era, he had Damon Hill, who's very nice. You've got Mika Hakkinen, who's very kind of mostly level-headed. And there was never really that intense rivalry, that more than just competitive rivalry which I think is why they kind of skip the middle bit. And I'm trying to think if there's any, if there is anything, anyone that really gave him needle like that. Fernando Alonso did towards the end of Schumacher's first F1 career. Think about that San, was it San Marino Grand Prix where where ITV famously <laughs> cut away yes. whilst Alonso is is holding off a faster Michael Schumacher in consummate style by driving his Renault exactly the way that, you know, Fernando Alonso knew it could be driven in mm. order to do so. That was a statement. And that year, I remember at the very end of the year when Alonso won his first championship, him standing on the top of his car and primal screaming when he won. There's a wonderful photograph of it. And he is literally, that's his soul coming out there because he's beaten the man who's just bored us all senseless for five <laughs> years, winning everything in sight by fair means and foul. And, uh, you know, with the aid of some tweaks to the rules to... is was Because 2005 was the year of the no tyre change, mm. so your tyres had to last the whole race, which totally fucked Bridgestone. I hope deliberately because we were all bored of Ferrari yeah. winning everything. But also, you know, this is the... It was a changing of the guard and... Schumacher fought both Raikkonen and Alonso in 2005. I watched this and I I think I said it to you in a text that I'd probably give it a C plus. I think maybe that was a bit harsh. I would dispute your assertion that this is not as good as Senna. Senna, unfortunately, suffers from being an entirely one-sided documentary. It's not even a documentary, really. What they're doing is taking footage of the man and weaving a narrative yep. with it. They're not necessarily telling the facts of the man. They are myth... What's the word? <laughs> they're, um, they're making the myth. 
They're eulogising mm. him. Yes, they're making a myth of Senna. So you have the the no longer go for a gap bullshit yep. line, which no one really takes seriously, but fanboys over the world will cite <laughs> as reasons why Max Verstappen is God and Lewis Hamilton is the devil. You've got Prost painted as this cartoon calculating Frenchman with a hook <laughs> nose, which in some instances is not too far from the truth, but in other instances is woefully unfair You've got no mention of um, Nigel Mansell mm-hmm. at all, despite him being, you know, Senna's other principal rival. He's not in it mm. at all. It's like he doesn't exist. The difference between Senna and this is this does attempt to tell a slightly more even-handed story of the man. You get a lot of mm. him coming up through through karting. You get more of an impression, which I kind of knew but didn't really understand that. It, they were not a man, a family of means, the Schumachers. And so he had to work for everything. And like you say, that instilled in him the work ethic that he came to exemplify. And he moved the game on in terms of how hard it was possible for a Formula One driver to work for their craft. And mm. you get to see quite a lot of time in that first race for Jordan and him joining Benetton. You get some Flavio Briatori contemporary interview, which is hilariously subtitled because <laughs> no one can understand what Flav is saying. And all hey, I could think... All I could think while watching it was um, the uh, the Sniff... Is it Sniff Petrol who used to do an impression with him on the Gareth Jones on Speed podcast? Hey, very nice. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, all I could think of was was Richard Porter's impression of Flav, <laughs> and not what Flav was actually saying. <laughs> also, how slim Flav was in the early nineties. Yes, yes, he's a large man now. He looks like someone that's eaten Flav. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the way that they they basically spent the time charting Schumacher's progress at Ferrari in the early years because I remember him, you know, the, they spent time examining the the Damon Hill incident in 1994 for which Schumacher became the cartoon enemy of all mm. British Formula One fans and I include an impressionable something years old me um, <laughs> amongst those and then they go. They don't. They completely skip over to uh, 1995, where he just dominates, and they move to him going to Ferrari in 1996, and them describing a car that wasn't particularly good. Um, and they spend some time showing how Schumacher worked at it. There, they they spend some time on that famous race where he's two to three seconds a lap faster than everybody else in a rubbish car that he's just found a way to make work, and it's. He was an adaptable driver, mm. which is what we love in all of our champions, especially our serial champions, as they are drivers who can adapt. Um, and then they get into the sort of the rivalry, such as it was with Mika Hakkinen. And it wasn't always a rival because I don't think it, they were always at the peaks at the same time. Mm. You know, Particularly Mika with the had, tires. Yeah, the tires. But Mika also had the advantage of an absolutely phenomenal Adrian Newey designed McLaren. And. And completely unflappable and probably pound for pound in equal cars, the fastest Formula One driver on the grid at that time. If you put him and Schumacher in equal cars and just handed them the cars and said, no, you can't go testing for 24 
years at Fiorano, you've just mm. got to get in and drive it round a lap. My money would always be on Mika to be faster. Yep. And and they did chart and they show, like you say, Schumacher's hard work. They show the night testing at Fiorano. And I remember when I was a fan of F1 at the time thinking how unjust and unbelievably unfair it was that Ferrari had basically two circuits of their own that they could use 24-7, and no other Formula One team had that or was even going to ever be in a position to have that. Hmm. Um, and, and it, you know, when you put that together with the incredible work ethic of Schumacher and the, the you know, the genius of team building and United Front presenting Jean Todd and Ross Braun, it's no wonder that they just dominated. But fortunately, the documentary doesn't go into that because there's nothing to tell. There's no drama there, really. Unless you go into the really nerdy stuff, which just isn't going to play to the broader audience that they want to find for this. They tell the story of the meteoric rise, then they tell the story of the challenge of conquering Ferrari and getting that world title that they've wanted for so long. And once that's done, they can then kind of focus on telling the back, you know, the back half of this movie. Mm. And yes, the ending is tragically sad, because it's clear from the documentary that Schumacher is not in a very good way, certainly not in a particularly, certainly not in a way where he can communicate with his family in the way that they'd like to. And probably the most heartbreaking thing is Mick Schumacher talking about wishing that he could Ugh. talk motor racing with his father because Mick is now a, a Formula One driver and, and he's kind of coming into his own as a racing driver and he's, a, he's doing that as a son of one of the most famous racing names of all time, mm. in a way, like Damon Hill, actually, he's doing it without his father there. Yes. Actually, yeah, that's that's true. And I, the thing I really enjoyed about this um, is they talk to all the people who matter. Mm. With uh, And I think what somebody pointed out, with the exception of Martin Brundle, who would have been able to give some interesting context, having been a teammate and a commentator on all of Michael Schumacher's major career moves from 97 onwards, all of his Ferrari, you know, almost all of his Ferrari time. Mm. Um, he was a missing name, but all the other major names are uh, interviewed, including a Mark Webber who sounded like a Kiwi to me. <laughs> and I was, I was listening because he comes in voiceover first pre-lap before they actually show him. And I was thinking, who's this Kiwi guy? And then it was Mark <laughs> Webber. And I, maybe I was just mishearing it. But um, yeah, it does a good job of telling everybody about the man that you didn't get to see at race weekends. And for that, it's absolutely worth watching. Is it among the great motor racing documentaries? I'd say it is because of the, the stature of the figure it's talking about, the achievements it's just a shame that it has to end in the way it does. I think you're right in that it kind of feels like Netflix is the best place for it because I think what Senna brought It's not an artistic achievement like no. Senna is. It's not a marvel of editing or scoring mm. or... It doesn't have panache. Know, or archive searching for that matter. Senna was unique in that it kind of reintroduced the glamour of motorsport and reintroduced a character to an audience that had maybe not known who he was other than a man who died at a race one time. Mm. And and it did. It wove a story. It practically was, was fiction in the form of a documentary. And this is not that. This is far more a 
uh, you know, a, a documentary in the traditional sense of the, the word with talking heads and with, you know, contemporary people talking about their experience of the person. So I don't think you can compare them evenly. I think by and large, this has met with a great reception. Yep. Across the board. I don't think I've seen poor reviews and... I think it, depending on how Netflix play the algorithm, if they start putting this in front of the people who watch Drive to Survive, then they're going to introduce another name who maybe go, oh my God, I didn't realise Mick Schumacher's dad was famous and good. You know, there's going to be a lot of people who have no idea who Michael Schumacher is. And this is going to introduce him to all of those people who maybe will go and seek out some of those Amazing performances. I mean, Mm. I was watching this with my wife, who was a huge Schumacher fan during his first career, pre-Mercedes. And we were watching it and and she was saying, it's, you know, it's it's just a shame that he he didn't go out on top. He didn't leave in 2005 when he, or no, sorry, in 2004 when he won his final world championship. And I said, honestly, I think he went out on top. I remember watching... Brazilian Grand Prix of 2006, when he, we all knew he was being moved aside by Luca de Montezemolo for Kimi Raikkonen, who was coming in from McLaren. Mm. And Schumacher had a puncture, and he had to go and pit, get new tyres, and then he tore through the field like a hot ball bearing through runny butter, humiliating <laughs> every driver he came upon. He passed them like they were stood still. It was an absolute statement that he was not going to go out with a whimper. He was going to go out as absolutely still the fastest F1 driver on the grid at that time. And I remember watching it thinking, I, you know, I, I, at the time, I really didn't like the guy. Mm. And still, you couldn't help but be amazed by <laughs> the skill on show and the fact that he was just making a statement to say, I'm still the best. <laughs> Speaking of Netflix, and I think this is really interesting take from the drive there is speculation and rumor and we will report it as such that netflix might be interested in buying the rights to f1 broadcasts i should clarify this this i saw this on motorsport.com and i believe the context is that netflix does not want to be involved in it unless they don't want to buy like the just the rights to broadcast F1 races because they don't control the sport, but they would be interested in buying the entire sport as Liberty Media did when Bernie Eccleston sold it. They would be interested in buying the entire thing so that they control it. Wow. So it's not that they want to do like digital broadcasts like Amazon do with some football matches and tennis and the US Open and so on where you can watch it if you've got Prime. That's not what Netflix is is after um let me see if i can dig out the the article uh because it's the the it wants the control so here you go speaking in an exclusive interview with der spiegel netflix's ceo reed hastings said news is by its nature political and it varies greatly from country to country difficult to produce news as a globally operating company without making enemies and Sport is the same thing. We keep our hands off of live sport. The only way Netflix would consider getting behind the live broadcast of sport if it would be if it owned the entire platform like Liberty Media does with F1 at the moment. And then he said if F1 did come up for sale again, then Netflix would seriously consider a bid. They'd think about it because they want the control to be able to offer their customers a secure deal 
globally. Mm. Whereas the problem with F1 is, of course, rights are sold regionally. So, for example, in the US, the F1 app lets you stream races live to your device, paying a reasonably small monthly subscription. Whereas in the UK, Sky have exclusive rights. Mm. So you and me have to pay Rupert Murdoch and his company a shit ton of money to watch F1 live every fortnight. And the same is true in Germany for different companies and so on and so on. And Netflix doesn't want any part of owning the rights to stream F1 in the UK, in the US, but nowhere else. They want to control the entire thing. And it's not inconceivable that at some point Liberty Media might want to sell. What I think would be inconceivable is that they would manage to line up all of the ducks in a row such that they could exert that global control over something that has never been controlled globally or sold mm. globally. So, And let's not forget as well, Liberty Media paid nearly $5 billion for F1. And they've invested a lot in it. I mean... A lot has changed, I think. Yeah, it's it's incremental change, but it has changed significantly. The way they've jumped on team radio, which for better or for worse is something that isn't going away anytime soon, but the way they've jumped on highlighting snippets of team radio, um, the wonderful thing they did a couple of years back where they got somebody to animate the team radio yes. to drawings of things that were not about F1 at all, which was just... Wonderful. I know it wasn't an original idea that somebody somebody done it for something else, but seeing you know F one team radio and commentary in a completely different context was was hilarious. So yes, they've done an awful lot, but I can see there being a time at some point where Liberty Media want to cash out mm. or have to sell. I just don't know that Netflix would be amongst the list of buyers. We should move on because we're going to talk about Bond cars now. Before we do this, I'm interested to know, who is your James Bond? So, I have a very passing relationship with James Bond. I'm very much watching it on a Sunday afternoon or at Christmas or whatever. However, the Daniel Craig Bonds have absolutely enthralled me to the point that I struggle to see past him as James Bond. And I think... I, I have I have not identified with a James Bond more than him. What about you? For me, and this 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 is me riffing off of the classic again parochial British TV <laughs> reference. Everyone has their own Doctor Who. Mm. So for people of my generation, it might be Tom Baker, um, or you know perhaps Peter Davison. Although for me, it's always been Sylvester uh, McCoy. I was going to say Stallone then. (laughs) We're back to Driven. Yeah, we're back to Driven. Up until Daniel Craig, I would always have said my James Bond was Timothy Dalton because it was the first Bond movie I saw and I really liked his portrayal of Bond. I came to Bond via having read the Ian Fleming books first because I found them on a bookshelf in my grandmother's house when my parents were staying there for a week. Uh, This is in... Um, Anglesey in North Wales and it rains a lot there sometimes you can't do anything but read and I found these and I probably wasn't really old enough to read them being as they're full of sex and violence and misogyny and drinking but I read them from Russia with Love and Casino Royale and Octopussy and the bond in there is the bond that's most like Daniel Craig's bond and to a, to a lesser extent Timothy Dalton's bond 
And so, like you, I grew up watching Bond movies on a Sunday afternoon or at Christmas when they were on the TV, maybe slightly edited if they were on at three in the afternoon. (laughs) But they were kind of from the past. And then Timothy Dalton did The Living Daylights. And this was the first one I remember my parents renting on video and, and watching and vetting for me to watch the whole thing rather than just watching and edited highlights on, on TV. And so I always had a huge fondness for Timothy Dalton. He only got to make two movies, only one of those movies really any good. And so he was my bond up until Daniel Craig came along. So with that, I'm guessing then your favourite Bond movie has to come from the Daniel Craig oeuvre. My favourite Bond film and I'm discounting Austin Powers in that list, is absolutely Casino Royale. Because if I think back to the Bond films, I I struggle to tell you an entire Bond film plot, but I can tell you, like, you know, the the laser between the legs, the hollowed-out volcano, the, um, you know... You're still on Austin Powers here. Well, yes. <laughs> Pretty you know, much. I know you're not, but you Aston could Martin be. Martin with the number plate, with the oil slick and... Yeah. Um, you know, the, the opening to um, The Spy Who Loved Me is one of my favourite movie openings of any movie ever. Where you know where he's like he's he's skiing and then he goes off the cliff and he pulls his parachute. It's the Union it, Jack parachute, da, isn't it? Da, 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 it's da, a da. great Bond theme, one of the best Bond themes. We should probably, I mean, we should get to the car stuff, but there's all these sort of things that people hold on to very dearly, and so I'm trying very hard not to say the best Bond or the best Bond yes. movie. It's got to be personal preference because I think both of us are going to veer away from the norm with this in not just going, well, Sean Connery's the best as Bond. No. Um, Because I have never liked Sean Connery's Bond. I like Roger Moore's Bond less. I can't think of a single Roger Moore Bond movie I can sit through from start to finish. See, I remember, and this may just be what ITV was playing when I was of a certain age. For me, Roger Moore is always a very specific... Bond, he's always. I mean, again, it's the it's the Austin Powers thing, but it's the it's the kind of the camp Bond, the very arch. It's the arch wink to the camera. Yes, double taking pigeons Bond, and like as I, as I've explained earlier, my Bond came from the Fleming books, and that's nothing like the Fleming books Bond. And so I just didn't know who this person was on screen. But as far as I was concerned, he was not James Bond, despite him introducing himself as James Bond all the time. <laughs> the world's worst spy. Yes. <laughs> well, let's let's talk cars, because there's been... I was looking through a list earlier, actually, because I've been watching various clips completely out of context. And I started looking through a list, and there has been a heck of a range of Bond cars. And if you go back to the very, very start, I mean, before... So going back to, like, Dr. No, for example, you know, you look at the list of cars and it's like a Ford Anglia, a Chevrolet Impala, a Ford Consul, an Austin Cambridge A65. You know, this is this is not the things of uh, Monte Carlo and womanising Bond, is it? A Vauxhall Velux was in Dr. No. 
There's lots of these sites. I discovered this doing research too, that there's lots of sites that seem to take delight in pointing out the Bond cars that are actually just rubbish things that appeared in the background, <laughs> which by extension you can include any bit of French clutter from the late 70s that appears in any number of um, Roger Moore Bonds or whatever turds BMW was shitting out in the mid-2000s <laughs> that appeared in Brosnan Bonds. Brosnan got a real... For the start of his run as Bond, he got just the worst Bond cars. A BMW Z3 that doesn't even do a car chase in GoldenEye. And then a 7 Series... Wasn't it, in, a seven? Wasn't it was a 7 Series in Tomorrow Never Dies that he drives around Brent Cross in, and then <laughs> the a Z8 that just kind of dribbles along for a bit and then gets cut in half, much like Darth Maul, just gets cut in half. <laughs> Which uh, one was Invisible? Was that the... That's the Vanquish. So in the right. later, this is where I think Aston Martin somehow wrangled a deal with the, the the Eon Productions team to get Aston Martin back as Bond's car. I presume BMW paid them a big pile of cash, but mm. they got bored with how drab and dreary the BMWs that they were supplying for the film were and <laughs> needed a bit of the glamour back. And quite honestly, that is what you need. A 7 Series might be a wonderfully practical automobile for James Bond and much more befitting of an actual spy, but this is escapist fiction and bond needs to drive something beautiful and preferably british so one thing i did hear on an interview with daniel craig which always kind of stuck with me because i think particularly from casino royale onwards and i have a i have this twitch where i can start spotting product placement and once you start spotting it you you're just completely you can't stop and it's very easy in the craig era bonds too my god I mean, this is why we're both drinking Macallan 18-year-old. You're wearing your uh, own <laughs> Omega watch and, uh, yes. Um, and one of the things that he said, because they were talking about particularly Bond's fashion, which is not something that I entirely pick up on, but there, there's a website called something like bondlife.com where you can find out what pants he was wearing and what umbrella he carried in a film. And Daniel Craig apparently brings a lot to it where it's like, well, these are the shoes he'd be wearing. This is the tailor he'd go to and get this, that, or the other. And one of the things that I often think about with the the, the Daniel Craig era, and maybe because watching it on a digitally projected IMAX screen, you can read every label on a bar or, uh, or watch or whatever. But um, one of the things he said was that it has to be the right product. So they don't just come along and say, well, if you want, you know, unless you're like, I think, he is it Heineken? It keeps popping Heineken, up. Heineken, yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that that's the right product, but... No, but there's a lot of them where they'll basically say, it has to be the right thing for the character, and then we'll take all your money and put you in the movie. And so I think there's an interesting thing with Aston Martin where the DB5 has kind of become this totem, and Aston Martin... I wonder how much is them going, we will pay you to be in this, versus the production company going, will you give us cars for this? And I fact, think it's the latter because Aston have never got any money. So yeah. they are, they don't have a budget to go and pay Bond to use the Aston Martin release. If they did, it vanished very, very quickly because Aston have never got enough money to do that kind of thing. Well, it vanished so, when Ford sold them, probably. Yes, probably. Speaking of which, actually, before we, we carry on, because we have to talk about the, the DB5, we have to talk about 
a number of other cars which people will be jumping up and down to talk about. However, I want to talk about the Ford Mondeo first. In Casino Royale, in wasn't Casino it a prototype? Royale. It, it was, was a prototype Mondeo, wasn't it? It was a prototype Mondeo. And the... So when Bond is driving in the Bahamas, is it? And he's looking at his Sony Ericsson phone, which now looks hilarious. There's a lot of Sony stuff in there. There's like, and here he's using a Sony DVD player <laughs> and a Sony professional CCTV and a, system. And a Vio laptop on a boat. Um, yeah. If you watch Casino Royale, and I have, and you remember at the time Ford owned Aston Martin, Jaguar, Land Rover. If you watch Casino Royale, the good guys all drive Fords or Ford Group products. Most of the bad guys drive VW Group products. So Daniel Craig driving this Mondeo that was a prototype and Ford wanted to release the car alongside the movie. And the Bond team went, nope, this is the date we're doing it. And Ford went, oh, okay. And Ford had to change their plans to match the release date of the Bond film. That's the power of Bond. Even though this was a comeback with a brand new Bond who was met with some resistance from the public when he was announced. The whole Craig Not Bond, I think, was a website that's still online. The whole blonde, not Bond thing. <laughs> I can remember from friends of mine who are diehard Bond fanatics who do like Roger Moore because they claim he's in on the joke. Um, and again, mm. I come from the, the Fleming books. They're, they're not full of jokes. There are no jokes in the Fleming books, so I don't really <laughs> understand that approach but yes the, the thing i remember from the the ford products in casino royale is that when bond drives what is it a range rover or something to he, yeah. he smashes into the back of something all of the cars in that thing is like jaguar jaguar land rover jaguar volvo. Ford, jaguar volvo it's all of those they're all the yep. same things probably you know express fleet cars or something that they can just destroy <laughs> but i think here's here's a thing so not going through all the minutiae of what tedious car was in five seconds of The Spy Who Loved Me or anything like that. What are your favourite Bond cars? Now, I will... Actually, let me go first and then you can go because I wrote a list of the cars that Bond has driven, not necessarily yeah, yeah, the yeah. ones that have appeared in James Bond, the Absolutely. cars he's driven... I want to say in no particular order, but it's not really no particular order because I go back to my Dalton as my Bond with the Aston Martin V8 Volante, which in Timothy Dalton's first movie, The Living Daylights, has a memorable car chase somewhere out in Poland where he goes onto an ice rink and he uses the wheel rim to sink some form of Trabant by going around in a circle and then the, the ice flow kind of drops away and the Trabant sinks. He uses skis coming out of the out as outriggers coming out the side of the car it's got a rocket motor it's uh, as an impressionable young early teenager that that was so cool even if mm. the car i suspect is probably not actually very good that has always been one of my favorite bond vehicles more so than the db5 as far as i was concerned for me the db5 was a toy that my friend al had that i didn't really <laughs> understand why a little thing shot up out of the back and the bumpers shot forward and because i'd never seen those connery movies and i still i'm not entirely convinced i've seen goldfinger all the way through um they're just of a different era they don't speak to me in the way that later Bonds, Dalton mm. onwards, do. Number two on the list, the DBS. 
And some of this has been prompted by seeing Tavares's DBS in the least, latest series of Car Trek. Mm. But also, Quantum of Solace is a Bond movie that gets shit on a lot by the fans, the diehard fans, and I really like it. Yeah. And maybe this is me having my driven moment. The script is a bit cack because this was filmed during the writer's strike, so all of the crew, including Daniel Craig, had to have some input in writing it. So perhaps it's the storyline is a little confusing and the baddies, one of the more bland baddies of Bond lore, but I really enjoy the movie, partly because Daniel Craig's Bond is exactly the same. He's perfect. His physicality is perfect. He's like a live wire of rage in that Mm. movie. Um, But it opens with a really frenetic... I think might yep. be being fair, but it opens with a really punchy car chase with the the DBS versus some Alfa Romeos and a Land Rover, and it's cut too much. You can barely tell what's going on in the shaky cam that the Bond team inherited from having watched too many of the Bourne movies <laughs> and not quite understood what the shaky cam was for. Um but it's still a really good car chase. And it's actually, it almost gets better when they calm down and you see an absolutely wrecked and ruined but still rolling DBS cruise into the streets of where I think is Tangier or somewhere like that. Um, and it's just really memorable for seeing such, you know, the, the aftermath of one of these Bond car chases where he's still driving the car through the streets um, and pulls up and opens up the boot and the movie begins. But it's a really punchy opening to the film i just wish that the chase was edited a little more sympathetically so you could see what was going on and kind of tell the geography but the car is so cool in that thing just look with all the bullet hits and the rips and the the door missing off of it where it got smashed off i have actually seen one of the prop cars at the Bewley motor museum Mm. and uh, it, it took a battering but i love that um number three the white lotus esprit from The Spy Who Loved Me. That would probably be at the top of a lot of people's lists, but basically it's because it turns into a submarine. That's it. <laughs> the on the on-road stuff is is quite cool actually. The, the the chase is kind of in phases between like a motorbike and then a helicopter uh, and there's a, a a BMW like I think it's a 5 series that kind of chases them and then mm. has what looks like poo sprayed all over the windscreen <laughs> from the the taillights. But I really enjoyed that. That's that's cool. Actually, just on that point, before you carry on with your list, do you think that the Bond car stunt work gets enough credit generally? In the old days, no, because we were less of a kind of culture that wanted to know how it was done. But there's a lot of good stuff in there. I was watching the Citroen 2CV chase <laughs> from whichever Modular Moore one it was. I forget now. Um Oh, it was uh, Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only. It's a yellow 2CV. Now... There are people, famous car people, who really like the 2CV and will say that it is the most fun you can have in a motor car. And to them I say, no, it's an upturned corrugated skip on wheels. (laughs) That said, they do manage to make a decent bond chase out of one. Although it is hilariously sped up in places, they do lean on the 2CV's strengths, which is the fact that it will go off-road and it will do bouncy suspension things Mm. and... And when you stick a roll cage in it and paint it yellow like they did there, and it's really obvious, <laughs> then you can roll it over and have some members of the public help you push it back on. And uh, I, I kind of enjoyed that one. But um, 
I was watching that thinking that the people who did the driving for that, both in the 2CV and in the nameless Peugeot clutter that's chasing it down, <laughs> they probably didn't get enough credit for what they were doing. I think now in the era of behind the scenes and you know mm. features like Spectre had um, Mark Higgins, yep. ex-many times British rally champion and he of the most amazing save in the world when he was going around the Isle of Man TT race, he was the, the stunt guy driving the DB10. And, you know, Evo magazine wrote about it. There were behind-the-scenes featurettes about it. And they get more credit now, their names. I think there's more exposure for these kind of people now. But you look back and go, yes, some of the work they did was amazing. I'm fairly certain that the driver of that White Lotus is uh, Roger Becker. I think he's quite famously, he drove the car down yep. from Lotus yep. and the stunt driver did it and he did it and he was faster than the stunt driver. So the film crew went, no, you're going to do all the stunt driving from now on. Yes, yes. Let me quickly zip through my last two my last two cars before we talk about yours and then we'll try and talk on some of the good Bond chases before we finish. Um, the 2000, uh, sorry, the the um, 2000 GT from yes. You Only Live Twice, an off-ball choice, uh, sorry, an odd-ball choice, but... A really pretty car. It's not in it for all that long. And this is one of the rare cars that's from the Connery Bond. But I love it. Do you know what makes that car even rarer? No. So the 2000 GT is a rare collectible car. I think about half a million quid if you want to buy one now. The Connery car sits in the Toyota Museum. It's one of two. And Toyota never made or sold a convertible. They made two for the film production. That's it. Wow, they must be worth a bit. But I, I, it's a beautiful shape, and it's the point at which I think Japanese sports cars became desirable to the rest of the world. Mm. You show Bond in one of them, and, you, and, and one that's as pretty as that, and people go, ooh, ooh, that's good looking. <laughs> I, you know, I might want to buy another car from Toyota. What mm. else do they do? Um, and then finally... <sighs> I could I could have chosen any number of cars from this. I really wanted to ride in insert Land Rover Defender here because <laughs> in the latter years of Bond, there have been an awful lot of Land Rover Defenders been driven. Um, the opening of Skyfall has a pretty memorable car mm. chase that turns into a bike chase that turns into a foot chase um, where a Defender is driven by Naomi Harris's character who eventually, spoiler alert, turns into be Miss Moneypenny. And that has the shit beaten out of it a little bit. But then there are Land Rovers being fired off the side of a cliff in Quantum of Solace um, and bounced down the side of a snowy mountain in Spectre. Um, and famously in uh, No Time to Die as well. Yes, but I'm actually going to... I'm going to sneak in here for the return of Aston Martin to the franchise with The Vanquish, with Pierce Brosnan in Die Another Day, I think it was. Where it he was, got, yeah. Now, the movie is amongst the worst Bond movies. <laughs> I think it's it's pretty awful. And these are movies that I saw in the cinema because, of course, they came out while I was growing up. But this has The Vanquish in it. It has a, a reasonably interesting car chase across a glacier. It has some interesting kind of cool props in it. From There's a, was it a jacket. It's an XKR chasing it. It's a bright green XKR yep. convertible that's just got like a million rockets and <laughs> machine guns and stuff. The, the whole Vanquish is invisible with micro cameras. is such nonsense that it, it annoys me just to hear it spoken. But the Vanquish is cool enough to kind of offset that dreadful Q-branch technology. Um, 
so those are the top five. And an honourable mention, I rewatched Spectre just before this podcast, or at least the bits of it that I like that I enjoy. And I think the DB10 is actually pretty good in that as a, mm. as a Bond car. Yep. There's hints of prototype and and future Aston about it, while it doesn't quite look like the old Vantage or the new Vantage. It's kind of its own thing. And it has the it gets absolutely rinsed around the streets of Rome, um, <laughs> which is very enjoyable. So, how about you? Do you have any crossover with my list? Hugely. So, I think for me, my my list is going to be somewhat more simple. But I will rattle off first of all the DB five. Oh, okay. I was hoping to get through the whole thing without it being on there, just to be hugely controversial. <laughs> well, but the reason why it's on my list is not because it's a DB five. But because I think in my head, it set that template for you flick the switch and there's an ejector seat and the smoke out the back and the rockets and the machine guns and all of that stuff. And that idea, I think, really kind of formulated with that car. So it could have been anything. It could have been an E-Type. It could have been a, you know, Montego. It could have been literally anything. But as soon as stuff starts falling off the wheels and you know, all that sort of thing, it kind of captures your imagination. But all of this could be true, but really you're including it because in No Time to Die, it's basically an E46 M3 underneath, right? No, but I'm going to get that. To is that is why you're including it. It's got <laughs> nothing to do with the fact that Connery drove it or it's an iconic Bond no. car with all the gadgets. It's because underneath in the latest movie, it's not a DB5 at all. It's an E46 M3. It's essentially the greatest sports car of the modern era. <laughs> anyway... When I think of Bond cars, I think of the gadgets, I think of a cool car. And like I say, you could literally apply that to anything. I think the fact that it's become this cliche, it's become the Stan Lee of Bond cars. It's like, oh, it's not a Bond film until a DB5 turns up. It's like, I really don't care. I really, really don't. I would like it to turn up less. I enjoyed its reappearance in Skyfall. But equally, I enjoyed it getting blown to smithereens in Skyfall. <laughs> Spoiler alert, if you're an Aston Martin fanatic. Aston Martin? Ooh. <laughs> if you're an Aston Martin fanatic, the uh, DB5 does meet an ignominious but graceful end in that movie. The thing I enjoy about that is clearly Bond loves that car and the look he gives when it finally gets blown to bits is is beautiful. But yes, I, I enjoyed it turning up in Skyfall. I don't need to see it in No Time to Die, but the trailer makes it clear that yep. not only are we going to see it, it is the main Bond vehicle in that movie. But okay, apart from the DB5, what else you got? The Lotus. And I think for the same reason, the underwater Lotus, again, is that thing when you are 10... And someone goes, look, there's a car that turns into a boat. You just go, <gasps> and it's... It's so cool. I rewatched the segment, and we should say, you can see almost all of these little Bond chase segments if you go to the James Bond 007 channel mm. on YouTube, which has all of them clipped up for you in, in sort of perfect glory. The cut between the jump off the edge of the pier... And the boat diving in is so perfect. Mm. There's no point at which you don't buy the fiction that's being spun. It's uh, it's magical. One thing that I do find interesting with Bond, and particularly I think Bond cars kind of typify this. Typify? Is that a word? It's a, it's um, a word. Is the fact... It's a big word for us at whatever <laughs> time it is now. More whiskey. Is how the cars reflect the age... So particularly, I think, once they got more into the production side. So the cars from 
Tomorrow Never Dies, the cars from GoldenEye. Um, I mean, I absolutely agree. You know, the Die Another Day, Aston Martin and the Jaguar are, I, I think, are fantastic. I think they are great Bond movie cars. But the reason why I think that they're great cars, they're great Bond cars, is not because they are inherently elegant, although the Vantage is stunning, but they do that thing where you flick a switch and a section of the door opens with missiles. Machine guns pop up. It does that. It's a, it, you know, it goes back to that thing of the flamboyance, the, the extravagance of this, essentially like a transformer. Um, but what I think kind of that really signifies is that there was a point in the kind of mid to late 90s where things were big and excessive. And then what happened over time was we then got to the Bond era when, you know, he meets Q in the in the Tate and it's like, you've got a car, you've got a gun. That is my single favourite scene in all of Bond. That scene, I rewatched it every time I see it. I love it so much. I will go on record as saying I don't like... The whole go to queue, get a bunch of gadgets which will mysteriously but conveniently be exactly what you need for the missions at hand. I never enjoyed those scenes and I started to dread them as the dear old departed Desmond Llewellyn struggled to remember his lines and could clearly be seen reading them off camera. And then John um, Cleese, who again was just nodding and winking. Yes. Uh, Daniel Craig's Bond is so close to the Fleming Bond from from my youth that I, I love his interpretation and I would agree with you I think Casino Royale for me is probably the best Bond film in capturing exactly what Bond represents but in terms of sheer filmmaking Skyfall is the best executed film of the Bond sequence it has an Oscar winning director yep. a superb cinematographer every frame of that is 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 beautifully arranged and shot and that scene with Q in the Tate is my favourite scene in all of Bond history forget Ursula Andress coming out of the ocean (laughs) forget the DB5 forget it all Bond sitting down and he and Q having that sparring match. I love it so much. And I know this is not a movie review podcast per se. It's a car movie review podcast. But, oh, so good. And I have, you know, friends who just don't get it and just want it to be like it always was with Desmond mm. Llewellyn and them being like a big load of gadgets. And I just can't abide that backwards-looking mentality of just, oh, just make it like it was. No. And they lent a bit more towards the gadgetry in, in, in Spectre and and with the ejector seat and uh, flame grenades in the db10 but only just mm. they didn't go down the you know toothpaste that explodes or whatever <laughs> socks that send um, a message yes I, which works for me but yeah um curry you've got two more how many cars have you done how many cars have you done i'm sure you've done so oh, i don't know I, I i haven't got a list you sprung this on me there are two others that i will mention and this will make sense so one of them is the Austin Powers Shaguar because if you want to know what a Bond car is, look at the people who are spoofing it. And I think that is really what makes a Bond car. The other car that I will mention 
is the mini from the first Bourne film, Bourne Identity. I was going to bring up, yeah, Bourne Identity. I was going to bring up that chase when we start talking about, um, before we finish, we'll, we'll talk about the Bond car chases. Because, yes, the the mini chase in Bourne Identity has, there's some nods to old Bonds, which is basically, it's a it's a small, slow car being made to go fast much like many Bond cars did. So what's that Renault? It was a Renault 11 that... Um, yeah. It's a view to a kill, which gets cut in half through Paris, but it's a Roger Moore Bond, but it's a Renault 11 that's being absolutely hammered down the steps and 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 so on. And they do a really amazing jump stunt with it. And I got a real vibe of that from the Bourne mini chase in the first Bourne movie. I tell you, actually, there is one other Bond car that I do want to mention, which I forgot... Which was, and if you can tell me where this is from, I will be deeply, deeply impressed. It is a AMC Hornet hatchback. It's the one that does the barrel roll stun. I'm deeply impressed. Yes, it is. Which? Uh, which is from For Your Eyes Only? The Man with the Golden Gun. Man with the Golden Gun, sorry, yes. The stunt that has the, the swanny whistle dubbed over the top. <laughs> the stunt it? which is absolutely go and find it on youtube as he does the barrel roll stunt in one you know one shot it's i think it's one take mm. um but they go is <laughs> terrible but the stunt is astonishing yeah it's a little bit of rubbish for a bond car and it's it's got that sheriff sheriff guy who's a good old boy sat next to him constantly rabbiting on yeah um but yes the stunt is phenomenal and it, it's planned to perfection i think they actually did some computer modeling of it to make sure they got all the angles right um it's 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 one of the best car stunts ever and i include that up with all of the work that's been done by the fast franchise Mm. in recent years because i wanted to bring that up because bond car chases are surprisingly tame when you compare them to even the born like the born supremacy has a chase which is just bone crushing and you know, Bourne's in a taxi and the baddie is chasing him in a Mercedes G-Wagon and there is so much that that car goes through and gets smashed into. And Bond car chases are, as if you go back and watch them as, as I have for this, they're kind of blink and you'll miss them in some cases. They're not actually that long. The one at Quantum of Solace is a couple of minutes the chase in spy who loved me with the esprit is okay three or four minutes i think specter's got a pretty good one in that chase through rome mm. where he's being chased by dave bautista in that jaguar concept um the cx 75 yes which did not have the jet engine i think it was originally meant to have in it uh it just had a regular engine it still looked cool it actually might have looked cooler than um than the db10 but yes they're not they don't set the standard for vehicular mayhem as we like to call it on this podcast because you know the 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 fast franchise have have taken that ball and run with it and run with it so far (laughs) that i don't think bond can keep up or is even bothered to keep up. So the ones I wanted to pick, uh, to, I've already mentioned the one from The Living Daylights on the, the, the frozen lake. Yeah. Um, and the one from Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, the tank chasing Goldeneye. It's just so wantonly destructive. I love it. And there is a moment where the tank gets drifted, um, which I know... <laughs> 
your friend of mine, James Cameron, would either be criticising for poor technique or, or cheering because <laughs> it's a tank drifting. But I love that. Uh, the opening of Quantum of Solace, even though it's a bit too shaky cam and, and frenzied cutting, is, is still mm. pretty fun. And the For Your Eyes Only one, maybe, but it's really hard to pick a sequence and go, yep, that one. So Casino Royale, there is the moment where Bond takes his prototype DBS and drives it around Millbrook for a bit before flipping it. And then that's it. There's no other cars in that movie. Quantum of Solace, okay. Skyfall doesn't really have anything other than that opening chase. Spectre has the one we've mentioned. And that kind of covers the modern era. I don't think there's been a... I don't think Brosnan ever got a really classic chase, apart from maybe that one we mentioned in Die Another Day. But the problem is that by that point, you've sat through a Madonna cameo in the most ridiculous (laughs) plot I can think of. And so you're just like, I need to pull my eyes out. I can't watch any more of this. And so by the time the chase rolls round, you're too busy banging your head against the wall. So let's wrap this up with one question. I'm going to ask you this because I don't have an answer because I don't know that well. If you were to nominate one Bond film to put alongside Ronin and Gone in 60 Seconds and all the other films that we talk about and elevate here, which is the one that you would put in in that Hall of Fame? It's very tricky because, like I said, these are not extended sequences. They're they're sort of to get Bond from A to B. The tank chase from Goldeneye is is up there for a piece of work. I don't know. It's a tough question because I'm trying to think back and going like, who, yeah, who, where are you going to pick up the absolute top chases? I might go back to the Esprit chase because you've got a car being driven at its absolute limit and then it turns into a submarine. I mean, how <laughs> cool is that? Um, there's none of them that demonstrate the kind of driving skill that you'd like to see and that you do see in some of the things like, you know, our beloved Tokyo Drift mm. or or Ronin or something like that. I'm not sure too many of the Bond movies show that in the way that you're thinking of. Have you got anything on this one? Oh, I... I... I'm entirely the, the the wrong person to ask because in watching all the clips, they are just that. I, I It's just picking clips and it's picking little sections out of a film where the car chases to me always feel like a bit of spice in the action. It, they're, they're not the main no. event, whereas they are the main event in fast movies. These movies are constructed around the car chase sequences, whereas Bond movies are not. They might be constructed around action sequences, mm. but not specifically car chase sequences. One last thing before we, before we wrap this up and finish, because as ever, we've talked an awful lot. Um, I rewatched the trailer for No Time to Die to see what was in it from a car content perspective. Mm. And Bond is going to be redriving that V8 Volante from The Living Daylights. It shows up in like a blink and you'll miss it bit where he whips a cover off of it and it's got like an angular rear to it. Um, The aforementioned DB5 uh, is is in it quite prominently with the machine guns behind the headlights Mm. and Bond doing drifting and shooting at the same time. But most excitingly, there is a female double O agent who has driving the DBS Superleggera. Because for me, that is the perfect modern Bond car. James Bond should be driving that. I don't mean to be rude because it's a female double O agent who is 
assumed the moniker of 007 since I believe at the start of No Time to Die Bond has retired. I'm not saying that the woman should not be allowed to drive it. I just feel like the DBS Superleggera is exactly what a modern Fleming Bond would drive. It's fast, it's V12, it's a bit brutish. It's a bit flawed, but it's fucking quick. And it looks gorgeous, but with a hint of thug about it. Mm. And... That, to me, is the perfect Bond car, and I don't think he should be faffing around in some old silver clutter. <laughs> he should be driving a DBS Superleggera. That said, I'm excited to see No Time to Die, and I'm sure I'll enjoy seeing an E46 M3 in DBS <laughs> DB5 drag. I'm, I'm sure um, we'll talk about it in the next episode as well. We, we shall. We shall, yes. Let's move on to what has Henry Catchpole been doing this week? So... This was an interesting one, and it only came out literally today, so I don't know if you've had a chance to to watch it yet. I saw the title and went, oh, it's a milk float. <laughs> oh, your love of EV showing through again. So this is Henry Catchpole driving the Everati 964, which has been going around and doing the, the press circuit. There is a couple of interesting th- things about this video irrespective of how you feel about the car, I've really felt it was one of those films that Henry and the team do where they go, we've got an idea, we've got a theme, let's do that. So rather than just going, here's a 964 with an electric drivetrain, here's, you know, here's the future, blah, 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 blah. They go, we are imagining this world 100 years from now where there is no more oil and now we've got this car and we're driving it around a a deserted military base. And I think whether you like the car or not, it's actually, I think, a very good video concept. And I'm kind of intrigued to see what the reaction to it is, whether it's too much and it's too kind of far from the car um but i i enjoyed it as always i thought i thought it was a good it was another good video from that team and i i think it's interesting to see people taking the car format and kind of going let's do more than just drive let's actually you know try and put a bit of atmosphere around it also Carfection are at about as we record this at about nine hundred and sixty-five thousand subscriptions. Nine hundred sixty-five thousand subscriptions, I should say. So, if you don't watch Carfection content, you should. If you're not subscribed, go and subscribe. They are really making a lot of good stuff, and I think this is this is up there with some of the better stuff that they've done. Moving on to my YouTube picks of the week. I'm sticking with the Bond theme. And Tyler Hoover of Hoover's Garage has bought the cheapest BMW Z8. And am I the only person who doesn't get it? I get it. I mean, he's he's on a mission to reassemble what he considers to be the best sort of group of BMW cars that BMW made at a time in the early 2000s. So that that 7 Series, I can't tell you the E code for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, the, the M5, the E46 M3, um, the Z8 
he's kind of trying to get them all in that silver that they did. The Z8 I get because it's got the engine from an E39M5 in it. It's kind of got that retro styling that I think Americans went for more than Europeans. It's actually, it's a modern classic. If you got a good price for it and hangs onto it and doesn't do anything stupid with it, then it's not going to lose any money because there is a market for those cars. Um, I watched the video with interest because although the title says, you know, things go wrong, not a lot actually goes wrong. The tyre pressure warning light goes on. But it is interesting to see those cars finding an audience. And I think he will bring that car to a bigger audience because there's an awful lot of people who watch his channel who maybe have never seen a Z8 before or don't understand what the inside of a Z8 looks like. I didn't, I'd forgotten what the interior looked like with that kind of retro steering wheel and and dash Mm -hmm. arrangement. So I'm I'm interested to follow this and see how it goes. Um, The Z8 would not be my choice of kind of quirky BMW. I would go for a Z1 because I, I I like those doors. How about a channel? So the channel, I think, is one that I've mentioned before, maybe not in this pick. Um, it's a series called Cinema Sins. So there's two channels that I do like. One is Cinema Sins, one is Cinema Wins. Both of them basically share the same format. I'm not sure if it's the same person who does both, but what Cinema Sins does is basically take a film and picks it apart and gives them sins for all the things that don't make sense or are silly or are convoluted or any of that sort of nonsense. Very lighthearted, but at the same time, great fun to watch. They are doing a series at the moment where they're going back and basically analysing old Bond films. So if you want to have see somebody sort of pick apart... Um, what are they doing at the moment? They've got um, License to Kill, Thunderball, A View to a Kill, Diamonds are Forever. Each one, just like 15, 20 minutes, picking it apart, pointing out all the silliness. Um, I think they're going to keep going through the Bond film. So if Bond is your thing, go and check it out. What about you? Well... My video, I hadn't actually written one, but I opened up the show notes just before we came to record this, and someone has pasted in top 10 moments of Jacques Villeneuve brilliance. (laughs) I wonder who that could have been. I opened it up in my tab, and what I got was five seconds of a blank screen, and then the video ended. (laughs) So moving on from, from that, my channel pick is JM on Cars, which we've mentioned previously as something we hadn't featured, but I've been watching quite a few of his videos recently, uh, because of his kind of slightly quirky, individualistic um, opinions on cars, his reviewing style, he's unflinchingly honest. He isn't afraid to tell it how he feels it is. He's not afraid to make enemies. Um, and that's rare and refreshing. Mm. I don't think he gets the kind of hits that perhaps he should for his car reviews, as maybe he does for the here's how much it costs to in depreciation for a McLaren or here's why McLarens are also shit or Mm. any number of those videos. I think if you were to go and search through his videos to see the most downloaded ones, they're going to be the ones where he's pulling apart McLaren financing or or whatever. Um, But his video reviews are are fun and enjoyable and Mm. I've watched a couple of them today. Just they're a different take on the car world and a, a refreshingly unfashionable take on the car world. And so 
for that, I think he is worth a watch and worth a subscribe. And he's been putting out a lot of content recently. I think he did a trip up to Scotland with the Porsche Club GB and drove an awful lot of Porsches there. So there's been quite a lot of Porsche content. So if Porsches are your thing and you like someone who is unflinchingly honest in their reviews, then please check his channel out, JM on Cars. Um, As for the moments of Jacques Villeneuve brilliance, well, uh, one thing I forgot to mention in our Schumacher review is they do talk about the incident between Michael Schumacher and Jacques Villeneuve in the 1997 title deciding Grand Prix at, I think, Estoril? Uh, No, Jerez. Jerez, sorry, you're right. And they show the incident from a wide shot. They don't show the onboard, which I think is even more incriminating, but the wide shot in 4K Ultra HD (laughs) on my television, you can watch Schumacher's hands make the decision to drive into Jacques Villeneuve. And haven't we all wanted to do that at one time or another? To quote Richard Porter. When you are tired of hitting Jacques Villeneuve in the face with a fire (laughs) extinguisher, you are tired of life. (laughs) So I think that's a good note on which to end this podcast. Please do share, like and subscribe and all that good stuff. Tell your friends about the podcast if you've enjoyed it. Um, If you disagree with all of our opinions about James Bond, then you're just wrong. (laughs) Okay? But please do tell us what your favourite Bond car is. Possibly highlight a Bond chase that we didn't mention. Give us a review on your podcast repository of choice if you so desire. It does help in getting us to a wider audience. Um, With that, I think we're off to climb into our Aston Martins and drive off into a rear projection sunset. (laughs) Until next time, everyone. Bye.